Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We're reading from the book of Romans, chapter 3, from verse 21 to chapter 4, verse 5. We read together. But now a righteousness from God apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting it is excluded on what principle on that of observing the law no but on that of faith for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law is God the God of Jews only is he not the God of Gentiles too yes of Gentiles too since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all, rather we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, He had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is creditors as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Fred, thank you very much indeed for uh, reading that Bible passage for us. We're going to ask this big question tonight, and it is, uh, how can a God of justice send anyone to heaven? We, we couldn't be dealing with a, a more important question. This is a question that is relevant to everyone, because it is a, a question about life after death. Now, I know that not everyone's thinking all the time about what happens when we die, but the devastating terrorist attack this week on the Westgate shopping centre in Nairobi tells us that our lives hang by a slender thread. Ordinary people going about their ordinary lives, doing an everyday activity, suddenly caught up in that. Now, while Kenya and those appalling scenes seem to be a very long way away, as I was listening to a world expert on terrorist activity on the radio this week, it came home to me that this is a very real and present danger. The expert said there are shopping malls all over the world and they're easy targets. 
with no security checks to get into them, and with thousands of people in them, if this is a new strategy being developed, uh, being adopted by extremists, it is a very worrying development. Add to that a bomb in a market in Pakistan and a gunman killing dozens in a Nigerian college. And while these countries seem a long way away, shopping centres and markets and colleges aren't. Life can be taken from us in an instant. Not that we need anything as dramatic as the attacks in Kenya and Pakistan and Nigeria to tell us that. We've just heard it from Richard, two friends sailing, doing a simple thing of sailing, dying in an accident. While I was preparing this very talk, I had a telephone call to tell me two people were dying. Their deaths won't make the news because death is about us all the time. Now look, as a vicar who deals with death regularly, let me tell you that I have yet to meet anyone who, when face to face with death, doesn't want to know about heaven. When I'm asked to take a funeral, as I meet with the relatives, they want to know that their loved one is in heaven. That's why this question matters. It's about what happens when we die. How can a God of justice send anyone to heaven? Uh, having, having said that, having said that uh, it's important, the assumption amongst most people in Britain today is that when they die, they will go to heaven. We hear it when a celebrity dies, a, a sports person, an actor, a television presenter. As tributes are paid, we hear people say, I'm sure he's looking down on us today from heaven and he'll be touched by all the wonderful things that are being said about him. Or, we're so sad to see her go and we're going to miss her terribly, but I bet she's having a wonderful time up there with whoever it is. There's an assumption that when we die, we go to, go to heaven. But the Christian gospel starts from the other end of the stick completely. Popular thinking is that we are good. Most counselling and psychotherapy begins from the premise that we are basically good. But the Bible starts from a diff different position altogether. Uh, quite apart from the obvious examples of terrorists and paedophiles and rogue traders, none of us are good. And the Christian gospel acknowledges that, and I'm going to show you that in a moment in the Bible. And for what it's worth, that's one of the reasons that I'm a Christian, because as a 20-year-old, I began to realise that I wasn't good. I'd never been in trouble with the police, I didn't have a criminal record, haven't even got a parking ticket or points on my licence. Well, not at that point, anyway. I, I, I had a job, I contributed to society, paid my taxes, didn't have a bad debt or, or a dodgy credit rating. To all intents and purposes and to everyone looking on, I was a good person. Not perfect, but decent. That's how it looked. But the truth was quite different. At age 20, I began to realise I wasn't a good person at all. I was just about to leave home. I was in the process of buying my own flat. So I had a couple more months uh, of living in the family home and my mum said to me one day, you treat this house like a hotel. Ever heard that before? <laughs> I'd heard it loads of times before, dozens of times, but that time it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I had to acknowledge the truth of it. I was selfish. I was someone who expected my mum and others to run around after me. As far as I was concerned, I was the centre of the universe and the way that played out in everyday life was pretty unattractive. That's why I began to think more seriously about the Christian gospel. And as I did, I found that the Bible was honest with me about who I was. Yes, we're made in the image of God and capable of great moments of kindness and thoughtfulness and creativity. But that's not the end of the story and you, you don't need me to tell you that. I'm not the sort of person I should be. Now turn with me, if you will, to a Bible. You might not be used to having a Bible in front of you, but turn with me to 
page 1129, because it's important that this isn't just my thoughts, but actually what the Bible says. And if you can find a Bible, do turn in, in, the, in the Bible to page 1129. It's a, a book in the Bible called Romans. Here is um, uh, an apostle uh, who is simply a follower of the Lord Jesus from years ago called Paul, writing a letter to a church in Rome, which is why it's called Romans. Page 1129. And just have a look at uh, verses 29 to 31 of chapter 1. So it's on the left-hand side of page 1129, about two-thirds of the way down. Here is how the Bible describes the human race. Verse 29 of chapter 1. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It is a horrible list. And as we read it, it's very easy for us to look at the big one there and then begin to justify ourselves. Murder, I've not murdered anyone, I'm not so bad. But if I'm honest with myself, there's a ton of stuff here that is completely true of me and makes me ashamed to be me. Let me ask you this evening, as I read some of these again, do any of them ring true for you? Do you see that one in verse 29? Greed. It's the desire for more and more, driving you on in your career to get a bigger house, a bigger car, more luxurious holidays. You know that longing for more. And we know it's an insatiable appetite because when we get that something, the promotion, the latest smartphone, the new car, when we get it, we feel happy for a while. But in no time at all, the satisfaction wanes and we're left wanting more and the latest and biggest. We're not satisfied. We're greedy for more. And that leads to another word in the list there, verse 29, envy. We want what others have or or want to be what they are. And then there's deceit there in verse 29. It's the times we lie to get out of a fix or because we want to make ourselves look better because we envy someone else and we want to be the good guy. Uh, We retell events and conversations in a way that put us in a better light. Have you done that? Of course you have. Reminds me of the young businessman. A guy who fancied himself as a bit of an entrepreneur. He set up a business on his own in new offices. Sitting in his brand new office on his first Monday morning at work, he heard someone coming up the stairs. He was keen to impress, so he picked up the phone just before the visitor entered the office and he pretended to be discussing a multi-million pound deal. And he mouthed to the man standing there, I'll be with you in a minute. So there he was with the telephone to his ear, with no one else on the other end of the line, speaking loudly so his visitor could hear everything he said. And finally, after about five or ten minutes of faking high-powered negotiation on contracts and down payments on bank guarantees and significant investments, he put the phone down and faced his visitor. I'm very sorry about that, he said. Crucial call, big investment. How can I help you? And the visitor, looking a little embarrassed, said, I've come to connect the phones for you. We, we love to make ourselves look better and so we're boastful. That's in the list as well, as is the word gossips. Or if you wouldn't call yourself a gossip, what about the next one, slanderer? It's saying things about others that aren't kind and aren't true. Look, when I read the Bible seriously for the first time, I began to see that it told me how I really am. 
It wasn't always comfortable reading, but it diagnosed the human condition correctly. But now let me tell you my knee-jerk reaction when I first started to read this sort of stuff. As I read this sort of stuff, I thought to myself, but I'm not that bad. While I knew this was true about me, I quickly thought to myself, but compared to others, I'm not that bad. And that's the very next thing that happens in the book of Romans. This is the problem with reading the Bible. It's sort of, it's ahead of you. And you, just as you think a way out of it, it gets you. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It speaks to people, who do you see the, the phrase there? Who pass judgment on others. We do that. We all do it. We, we do it to make ourselves look better. We love to compare ourselves to others. And we can always find someone around who's worse than us. A mum was tidying her 15-year-old daughter's room and discovered an envelope on her pillow marked mum. So she opened the pillow, slightly uh, opened the envelope, slightly apprehensive, and, and she read the letter that was inside. Mum, it's with great regret and sorrow that I'm writing to you. I've had to elope with my new boyfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with you and dad. I'm finding real passion with John. He's really nice, even with all his piercings and tattoos, beard and motorcycle clothes. Not just his passion for life, mum, but I'm pregnant. John says we're going to be very happy in the trailer he owns in the woods. He wants to have a lot more children with me, and he's taught me that marijuana doesn't really hurt anyone. So in the meantime, please pray that science will find a good cure for AIDS so John can get better. Don't worry, Mum, I'm 15 years old now and I know how to take care of myself. Someday I'll be back so you can get to know your grandchildren, your daughter Judith. Well, beside herself and shaking now and on the verge of tears, Mum turns the letter over and she reads these words. P.S. None of this is true. I'm over at the neighbour's house. I just wanted to remind you there are worse things in life than my report card, which is in your desk drawer. I love you. (laughs) Remember that one? I love you. Please call me when it's safe to come home. (laughs) Making comparisons. It's a great way to make our mistakes seem less of a problem, isn't it? And when we've blown it, we can always find someone else is worse than us or something else that makes our failures seem more acceptable. It's why we are gossips and slanderers. We put others down to raise ourselves up. Some do it because they're arrogant. Another word in our list in verse 30, we're proud. We think we're great. And because we think we so highly of ourselves, we look down on others and feel that we can badmouth them. For some of us, it's our insecurity that makes us speak badly of others. We know we're not what we should be and we feel insecure and we envy others. Uh, another word that we've already seen in verse 29, envy. We envy others and we want to be what they are. And so to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, we put them down to raise ourselves up. You know that happens in your life, happens in mine. One way and another, comparing ourselves to others is unhelpful. We do it to make ourselves look better, but at the end of the day, it doesn't do us any good. Quite the opposite. It actually does us harm because it enables us to ignore the real problem. And the real problem is how God views us. Never mind how we match up to others, to each other, How do we match up to God? That's what this part of the Bible is all about. And it's not good news. The Christian gospel tells us that no one deserves to go to heaven. 
Listen to the conclusion of this very careful and measured description of the human condition. It runs from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3. And if you'll turn over the page, you'll find the conclusion in chapter 3, verse 9 to 12. You see, we know it's a conclusion because it says in verse 9, what shall we conclude then? I went to theological college, so I'm able to work these things out. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've all made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it is written. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. It's emphatic. No one, that's the word that comes through again and again, no one is righteous. That is, no one is right before God. And if we're honest, we know it's true of us. We've seen that ugly list. No one lives a completely right life. And our wrong lives show us that we have rejected God. So you see, when I slander others, I am saying to the God who says that I should love my neighbour, I'm saying, I don't care what you say, God, I'll run my life my way. And when we're deceitful, we are saying to the God who says that it's wrong to lie, we're then saying, I think I know better than you, God. I need to be deceptive to get myself out of this situation, to make me look better. So I don't care what you're saying, I'm going to lie. And so here we are, living in God's world, telling God that we don't like the way he's arranged things. We used to have a little holiday home in the Peak District. We we loved going there for holidays. It It was our home. It was our home from home. And because we liked it there, we were pleased when others used it and enjoyed it. Uh, But on one occasion, when we turned up for our summer holiday, we arrived to find the house in a pickle after it had been used by others. There were curtains on the floor because the curtain rail had been broken. Well, uh, that was frustrating, but accidents happen, although we wondered why the people hadn't told us. But what was worse was to find all the furniture rearranged, rooms moved around, even pictures on the wall moved to one room or another and and some put away in cupboards. It was remarkable. Some people had gone into a house and because they didn't like the way it was, they decided to rearrange it and then they left it that way. I wonder how you'd feel if someone came into your house and started to rearrange it, taking down curtains, removing the pictures, rearranging the furniture, in short, acting as if they owned the place, and all the time disregarding you, you sitting there in the, in, in the corner, the owner, you the owner, I expect you'd be pretty mad, wouldn't you? Now, if that's how we feel, how do you think God feels as we live in his world? And then try to rearrange not just his furniture, but his law, thinking we know better how it's going to work. It's offensive to God, and it's arrogant of us to think that we know better than the almighty creator of the universe And because it's not just furniture we're rearranging, but his law, that makes us lawbreakers. One way and another, do you see that the way we live leaves us in a very precarious state? And you see, put like that, it begs the question, how can a God of justice send anyone to heaven? And here's the thing, we do want to follow a God of justice. Uh, This morning we were asking that very question. How can we believe in a God when people get away with murder? Again, we just have to think of the events of this week at the Westgate Shopping Centre in Nairobi. News reports tell us that those who carried out the attack were either shot dead or crushed when the the building collapsed. But what about those in the Al-Shabaab and Al-Qaeda organisations who orchestrated the attack? Those who are radicalising impressionable people, training them and equipping them to carry out these barbaric acts. It seems that they have got away with murder. 
And rightly, we can't bear the thought of that happening. And so we cry out to God to bring about justice. We want a God of justice. This morning we were remembering he is going to bring everybody to justice one day. We want a God who puts wrongs right. Of course we do. But from what we've seen tonight, do you see what that means for us? It leaves us in a mess. How can a God of justice send anyone to heaven? Or or may I make it personal? How can a God of justice send me to heaven? That was my dilemma when I looked honestly at my life and began to face up to being the person I really was. We come before the God of the universe with a criminal record as long as our arm and at the top of the list we've committed the greatest crime in the universe. We've rebelled against the God who made us and who gives us everything. We've had the audacity to ignore him and to think we can rearrange the moral fabric of his world. And so it would be wrong for a God of justice to send us to heaven when we die. But here's the thing. The one true God is not only a God of justice, but he's also a loving God. He is kind and compassionate and he longs to forgive. He wants us to be in heaven with him. And so from our perspective, there's a problem. There's a conundrum looking at it. We can't see how these things can be brought together. How can God be just and how can he forgive us? But thank God, there is a way. And we find that way in the Lord Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, the reading that we had for us, that Fred read for us. Speaking of Jesus, in chapter 3, verse 25, we read this. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Do you see, it would be wrong of God to ignore our wrongdoing, to just let us off. Indeed, God can't do that because he's a God of justice. So he didn't do that. No, in Christ, he took the punishment himself. And so he acts in a way, verse 26, to demonstrate his justice, and at the same time, verse 26, makes it possible to justify those who have faith in Jesus. The picture is of a courtroom. We're in the dock because of the long list of crimes that we've read already in chapter one. We've heard the verdict, guilty. We don't need to hear the verdict from God. Our consciences have declared the verdict to us tonight, guilty. And we, don't know, we know we don't have a leg to stand on. We're going down. But then the judge comes down off the bench and he walks into the dock and he takes our place and he tells us we can go free. And he tells us he's going to take the punishment. That's the picture here of what God does. He doesn't just let us off because he can't. No, a crime has been committed. Someone must pay. But because of his overwhelming and great love for us, he pays. And the price he pays could not be a bigger one. He pays with his life as we see in the cross That's what was happening as Jesus was dying on the cross. And in doing that, chapter 3, verse 26, he demonstrates his justice and he justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's how a God of justice can send anyone to heaven. 
through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on a cross. And so the only question left is whether I'll enjoy that forgiveness and that guarantee of heaven. For do you see it there at the end of verse 26? It is for those who have faith in Jesus. This becomes true for those who say, I can't get to heaven on my own merits. I don't deserve it. I'm guilty. And so I'm with great relief that there's an answer. I'm going to put my trust in Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust his death to get me to heaven. Not my efforts, his death. Now there'll be some here this evening who have never done that. You might never have even realised you have to do that. But you've heard enough tonight that makes you want to know how you can. Some of you say, I want to know more. How can I do this? Well, look, I'm going to be standing on the door at the end of this this service, and um, I've got a little booklet called The Real Jesus. And if that's you, if you're saying, I want to know some more, not committing you to anything, just take one of these, just say, I'd like one. Take one from me. Read about more about the Lord Jesus and what he did on the cross and how you can come into this wonderful relationship with him and know that your sin is forgiven and that heaven is certain. And I'll also have some of these so that I can encourage you to come along to the reason for God where you can ask your questions. And maybe you're way back at the moment saying, I've got loads of questions, but I want to know more. Why don't you come along? Well, look, thanks very much for coming, especially if you're a newcomer. Uh, we're so pleased you've come I hope it's been interesting and helpful we've still got a couple of things to do the first thing we're going to do is listen to a song Uh, it's a well-known song it's called Amazing Grace because what we've been talking about is grace God giving us something that we don't deserve that's what grace means a free gift I don't deserve heaven he gives it to me and when John Newton the, the, uh, the writer of these words of this song first discovered that his heart was so thrilled he wrote this song that we're going to listen to now. Peter, over to you. Thank you.